0: Hello everyone. Thank you for joining and welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panetta. We are downtown in Salem, Oregon today in studio. And Salem is the home of the Groundwork Leadership Institute, which was started a little over a year ago. And the intent was to raise the tide of leaders in the community. And it might sound cliche, but we really believe in building leaders from the ground up. And part of our This Leadership Institute, which by the way, we are not doing this and we didn't create this and we're not setting out to make money. We're not trying to make some sort of profit. Really, all we want to do is raise, like I said, raise the tide of leaders, provide opportunities for current leaders and emerging leaders to get the necessary, not just education, but mentorship and real world experience that leaders truly need to be the leaders that our community needs them to be, to be the leaders that organizations need them to be. So part of this Leadership Institute is this podcast Uh, for one basic reason. As an institute we believe, again, I keep saying we believe a lot, but really we want to house as much knowledge as possible. And so part of that was clear to us that a podcast was gonna be a way to literally push record and capture some of this insight and experience and knowledge that we get from the leaders in our community and leaders from outside of our community. Through all the connections that we have and people that we meet, we're going to try to really load this podcast and all these episodes with leaders that have much more knowledge than I do about leadership and all the different aspects of it and their specific expertise that they bring to the table. Now, today we have a really special guest and I'm going to bring her in, get her in on a phone call here soon. And Salam, our co-host, is going to be joining us shortly. But I want to give a brief introduction as to who she is. Her name is Melissa Schilling. And she's an expert in innovation. And I'll let, allow her to introduce her further uh, when we call her up. But as part of our institute, you know, we meet monthly with our cohort. And we have some sort of educational piece there. And a lot of times we have community members that come in and teach those sessions. But every few months, we bring somebody in from the outside, an author, a thought leader, you know, somebody that goes around and speaks and presents for a living all over the world. And we had a month, uh, which topic was innovation just recently. And we thought, well, let's just get an expert on innovation. So her textbook, and she'll probably say this, but her textbook is the number one textbook in the world on innovation. So again, her name is Melissa Schilling. And as I loop her in, we might repeat some of these things uh, uh, to introduce her. Uh, and again, Salam will be joining us, but I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this episode. Let me loop in Melissa and Salam, here we go. All right. So we have uh, Melissa here with us on the phone and Salam's in studio again. So thank you both for, for joining.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. And so I, I had mentioned, Melissa, already that, uh, you know, I gave it, you an intro, but I also want to allow you to uh, introduce yourself. Go ahead and, and uh, give us give us an intro on, on who you are and let our listeners know, know what you're all okay, about.
1: Okay. Sounds great. So I'm a, I'm a professor at New York University's Stern School of Business in Innovation and Strategy, and uh, I have been a professor, not always at NYU, but I've been a professor since uh, 1997. I've been doing research and teaching and consulting in innovation and strategy for, I guess, about 25 years or something like that. And uh, most of my most of my focus has generally been in sort of high-tech fields. I was really attracted to things like, you know, smartphones and computers and video game systems and now robots and electric vehicles and renewable energy solutions. Uh, but really the innovation, the study of innovation is just a study of the application of new ideas or new processes or new materials to useful purposes. So innovation can be in anything. And so sometimes I write cases on, you know, innovation in places like Starbucks or innovations in how we think about education. So we shouldn't think about innovation or technology for that matter as being limited to fields like computers and video games. In fact, um, we define technology in my field as the process by which any input is transformed into an output. So I always tell my students that even a massage is a technology and you need to think about it that way. I was just going to mention that.
0: I I remember you bringing that up with the group and, you know, I, I loved that you know, that, uh, definition and take on, on technology. Cause typically when you hear the word technology, you think of, you know, tech and, and, uh, uh, computers thinking, and, you know, things of that nature. So.
1: Yeah. You're thinking computers and software and maybe phones or something, maybe artificial intelligence, but it's, it's really just the way by which we do things for a useful purpose. And, um, so I've written a textbook. I think you already mentioned the textbook to them. That's been the number one textbook in innovation strategy for, uh, Gosh, a long time now, almost 15, 16 years, something like that. It's in its seventh edition now coming out. It's in seven languages. I'm also co author on one of the leading strategic management textbooks in the world. That's in its 13th edition. And then I recently uh, wrote a book called Quirky uh, The Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators to Change the World. And actually, I didn't name that book because I thought there was a lot, you know, to me, quirky was only one aspect of these people. But it's a study of serial breakthrough innovators and the things that they have in common and what we can learn from them. And it was a, the funnest. It was such a fun project to do because you basically get to immerse yourself in the lives of these serial breakthrough innovators, developing a complete case study of them and then comparing each case against each other case. And uh I think one of the most important things, well, first of all, a lot of things came out of it that I wasn't expecting. So that was really exciting and interesting. And they all have implications for how we work and how we parent and all these things. But the other cool thing is that a lot of these people had, so a lot of these people had traits that are clearly somehow connected to biology or something specific about their time and place or birth. But there was always also... All the outcomes of those things are things we could get to in other ways. So, for example, even though like some of them like Elon Musk and Nikola Tesla both had photographic memory and it enabled them to do some really cool stuff. You can do the same stuff. You just have to use a different mechanism mm-hmm. so that, the, you know, things like, you know, writing stuff down and deliberately following a longer causal path. So So that was one of the really exciting parts to me is that. Even when you reveal things that were kind of unique about these individuals, at the same time you reveal how we can get the same outcome by another means, which which I found uh, really cool. It means that anybody really has the potential to be a breakthrough innovator.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you you're already you know going into you you essentially can, gave us a condensed version of part of your, your book as you went you discussed all these different individuals uh, throughout you know recent history. Um, that are, you know, serial breakthrough uh, innovators, which I thought was a great way to present to our group. And and I had already mentioned, you know, every couple of, every few months we have, you know, somebody from the outside come in and, and be a presenter with our group. And so you were the most recent, uh, was it, it was already last week. Was it just last week? Just last Friday. Oh, just last Friday, a week ago. So, um, and by the way, you know, I have to say to have something be uh, number one uh, is is pretty remarkable, so uh, I don't have anything that's number one. So I think it's awesome that, uh, that you know that your your textbook is just a you know the leading textbook on on innovation. Well,
1: thank you, so, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it's actually I think that you know one of the things that worked out well. I got really lucky in a way because I had you know I I pursued this case study approach because it made sense to me in the phenomenon I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. But in the end, the book ended up being kind of like eight miniature biographies. Yeah, which you know, makes the book interesting. It's like, um, it's like, I didn't have to do that. I, like I, the book is interesting without my influence because the people are interesting. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. The like sto- I like- mean,
0: stories are so powerful. We use stories a lot here and, and that's essentially how you're teaching. Um, this right. idea of innovation is through, through stories and through other, other people's experience and lives. So I thought it was a fantastic way to, to teach.
1: Yeah, I was. uh, I felt very fortunate that that it turned out that way. I mean, they're very inspiring people. So you can end up writing an inspiring book just by writing about inspiring people. That's one of my one of my things I'm going to remember in my toolkit from now on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and what I what I enjoyed too was you didn't uh, glamorize, you know, some of maybe their flaws, you know, and some of the areas where they fell short. uh, Because a lot of times, you know, when we see people throughout history that accomplished great things, we sometimes forget that well, they were human, just like all of us, and. And they make uh, mistakes every day, and so you, you know, you covered that with the group. You covered. Look, this might not actually be the best way to approach things. You, you said a couple of times yeah. with, with some of them, and, and I appreciated that because it just it relates them to me more on a human level. To know that, well, they they did all these incredible things, but look, they they're just like like us. They're they're human beings, right?
2: So I, I appreciated yeah. that part. Yeah. Well, thank Mel- you, Melissa. I'm curious yeah. about about something. So as we look at all of those individuals that you have in, in your book and they're world-renowned individuals with tremendous accomplishments, I want to kind of relate that to leadership. They were not leaders in the various positions that they were in when they innovated. Uh, would you say some became leaders through their innovation and, yeah. and just the courage and and uh, the freedom they gave themselves to innovate? Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Uh, and I think there's an interesting tension there because some of them definitely ended up being leaders in their organizations. I mean, you, you know, if you use the word leader to mean person who sort of uh, directs and controls the organization, you know, some people might define leadership a little bit differently. But like Elon Musk is clearly a leader in his organization. Steve Jobs, Thomas Edison were leaders in their organization. In fact, all of these people at some point in time had various had leadership the title, moments. Had the title. That, of, yeah, leader. or yeah. had the title. But but I think where the tension is, is that um, some of the things that make, for example, Musk or Jobs great innovators um, might we might not think of as being great from a leadership perspective. And, you know, it's it's an interesting question, because what we look for in leaders has also changed over time. But like Musk is a great example because he's a contemporary person right now who's heading up <laughs> three major companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and has some traits that we would tend not to think of as great leadership traits, like the way <laughs> yeah. he is with people. He can be he can be very terse, mm-hmm. and he can come across as uh, you know not particularly empathetic. And sometimes he's micromanaging and things like that. Uh, he doesn't self monitor at all, and definitely he he doesn't view his role as being about how I help other people reach their personal goals and succeed. He's he's about reaching his mission. So. Um, And it's interesting also, so I wouldn't necessarily, some of these people you wouldn't have held up as being good beacons of leadership, but yet they led sometimes because their ideas were so powerful and so inspiring that people wanted to follow. So for example, Musk is a very, um, uh, you know, he's a person about which there's a lot of controversy. And there's, you know, if you read his Twitter feed, Uh, You'll see he's got got people who absolutely adore him, a lot of them, and people who absolutely hate them and hate him. And they both participate, you know, generously on his Twitter feed. And, you know, he can be quite polarizing in that sense. But even with all the mistakes he makes in in the sense of, you know, maybe blurting things out that he shouldn't or having tweeted, you know, about, you know, potentially taking uh, Tesla private or things like that. People continue to rally around him because they believe in the cause. And so that is an interesting feature there is that by virtue of the fact that he's so committed to a cause that a lot of other people are also committed to, he ends up providing a lot of leadership in that space, even if he uh, dispositionally is probably um, not someone you would think of as being – ideally suited to management, yeah. if that makes
0: sense. No, that makes great sense. And Salama and I, we just recorded an episode recently about different leadership styles and philosophy and kind of what leadership is at its core. And we, we talked about many of those things you mentioned, you know, empathy, transparency, uh, we talked about purpose. And I think a lot of times leaders, you know, get maybe frustrated or down on themselves because all of the qualities of a great leader i mean ultimately it who's going to accomplish and achieve all and hit all of those i mean not there's nobody that's going to be empathetic and completely transparent and completely innovative and completely full of purpose all the time 100% of the time and so sometimes we can get down on ourselves feeling like well i'm not being a good leader when yeah. in fact you know when when we have some when we have one of those traits uh, to the extreme in this case, you know, I'm, I'm hearing purpose. You know, people rally behind him because he knows what he wants to do. in a, In our institute, we call it rooted in. I mean, he's really he's very rooted in in what he believes and what he wants to do, and that's inspiring to people. So people follow, and so it makes up for maybe the lack of the, or the the inability to sometimes be empathetic, and vice versa. Sometimes there's leaders that are extremely empathetic and and they're very personable, but maybe you know they, they lack in other areas so it's it it brings up this interesting you know idea of this ebb and flow of leadership that we don't need to have all the right qualities all the time nor is it in my personal belief possible right and part of yeah. part of part of it is authenticity like salam had mentioned in, in this episode we rec- you know we we just recorded um, as a key quality being authentic and you know, Elon Musk, for example, is being his authentic self. And again, that's that's inspiring yeah. and, and motivative motivating for some people. So
1: Yeah, I'd say he's extremely authentic and extremely transparent. And for some people's tastes, too transparent. Yeah. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs> yeah. Melissa, yeah. yeah. well, uh, if I may follow up based on uh, on what Chris just shared. Um so we I think Chris shared with you the framework that we have for Rooted Leadership, and it's comprised of soil, seeds, and weeds as an organizing framework and a conceptual framework for organizations and for us as individuals. Uh, Would you say that these leaders that you studied and analyzed cultivated an environment that encourages innovation by others? So it's not just an environment that allowed them to lead and excel, but cultivated an environment. And that's what we call the soil. They've actually mm-hmm. created this healthy soil that encourages innovation, promotes innovation, rewards innovation, even if it fails. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that?
1: Yeah, I would actually say that was a weakness of some of them is that, um, I, you know, I'm going to talk about Steve Jobs for a minute because I think he, he provides uh, a really informative context for this. Steve Jobs was a very... Uh, a very can be a difficult person he did not like to take direction he was anti-authority he liked to break rules he was unconventional strong-willed you know not not a very adaptable person but he had so he had you know not adaptable to others in other in other ways and he um he had intense creativity and intense conviction and part of what enabled him to be so innovative and accomplish so much in his life was his conviction and in a way his unwillingness to compromise Hmm. so he had this belief about how a computer had to be for example and it had to be clean and beautiful and simple and it had to not have lots of ports which engineers engineers would want to put lots of ports on right Wozniak wanted to add ports to the computer and he was like no no you know it really mattered to him everything mattered the font mattered to him it had to it had to achieve this this perfect beauty and be this mind unleashing tool. So he was very uncompromising. And he was very um, challenging, like he challenged authority when when, when he wasn't the boss at organizations, he was a very authority challenging person. Now, here's the irony. When he was the boss, he was very authoritarian, right? So he was not the kind of boss he could have survived like that he or that he could have uh, worked under. Yeah. So I find that an interesting, an interesting um, quandary a a little bit. Like I don't, I think he would have hated working for him. (laughs) Does does that make sense?
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. And we actually, you know, we talked about leadership styles that a lot of times, you know, are unsuccessful in terms of leading people. And one of them was a authoritarian. And I, I would push back a little bit in that, you know, I think that what Steve Jobs did, and this is just my perspective relating to soil, has done a great job in cultivating soil for co- the company Apple Now. I mean, they're extremely uh, innovative and, and obviously lasting and, and strong. And, and uh, knowing people that, you know, have worked for Apple in, in various capacities is, you know, when I hear them talk about it, it's a, it's a rich soil but it started with somebody like Steve Jobs having this determined vision so maybe in the moment um uh where he 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 lacked in some areas i think he definitely paved the way for an organization whose soil is is pretty pretty great and 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 leads to quite a bit of success i mean they're you know leading in in many ways so that's the only area i'd push back but i definitely agree there's that yeah. there's that weird uh you know dynamic of he was a way that he probably wouldn't have enjoyed himself uh, had his leader been that way that's that's interesting
1: well you know' and it's, it, again it's it's the, the problem is that we can't really talk in absolutes because of course it's a big organization and he oh, yeah. wasn't domineering all of it but yeah you know parts. in his immediate in his immediate sphere, he was very domineering. you did it his way, it had to be his way, and even if your idea was better. He wouldn't like it until he had come to the conclusion that it was his own idea. So he was quite domineering. Yeah. But on the other hand, which he wouldn't have liked to have worked under. But on the other hand, he also provided some pretty powerful role modeling. Right. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's a whole generation of people who grew up thinking you got to be like this to be really innovative. And um, so there's probably a lot of really stubborn, idealistic people working at Apple, you Mm -hmm. know.
0: Yeah, influence is, a, is an interesting thing in, in terms of leadership, too, because, you know, there's lessons just in my personal life now that, that are so much greater to me, you know, now that it's been years after, you know, whether it's from my mom or from my dad, where in the moment, I didn't really like it, you know, uh, but now I'm so appreciative of it. So, uh, you know, th- there's a lot to say about somebody's legacy that they leave on, even if in the moment, you know, they have no idea the influence that it's going to have on many other people you know, after the fact, a lot of times that influence is greater than when they were actually in that moment or when they were actually alive. I think that happens with a lot of leaders in history and a lot of those individuals that, you know, you mentioned uh, last Friday and that are, you know, in your book many years ago is when they lived, but their influence is so massive still today. So
1: one of the things they could, they did do really well, I think, in terms of cultivating an environment for innovation is that, um, they definitely, they definitely cultivated self-efficacy throughout the organization because they were all—they were all definitely people who said, "No, it is possible. Do it. You can do it. Yeah. Just take this problem and go solve it." You know, and he, and without necessarily a lot of direction and no rescuing. I mean, there's a, this great example. I'm gonna—I hate to keep going back to Musk and Jobs because we should get to some of the other innovators, but there's this great example where there's a, a guy at SpaceX who comes in and says, "Oh, it's going to cost us," you know. A million dollars or something to make this part. And Musk laughs and he's like, That part is no more complicated than a garage door opener. I'm going to give you, you know, I think it was like $5,000 or $10,000. Go out, solve it, figure out a way to do it for this amount of money. And at first, the person is thinking, Oh my God, what do you mean? How could I possibly solve this problem for that tiny amount of money when other yeah. suppliers are telling me it's going to cost, you know, 10 times that amount? But he ends up going out and not only solving the problem, but doing it cheaper than the budget that Elon has given him. So that is a real uh, that is a real self-efficacy building move, right? To tell someone, no, you can solve it. Go do it. I have faith in you. You know, and um, I think a lot of them, a lot of the innovators had that sort of principle. You definitely see it in Marie Curie's uh, words and letters that she wrote to people she worked with and to her family. And uh, you see it in the way Dean Kamen leads and anyway.
0: I, I love that. And when you were actually going over that point um, with our leaders on, you know, last week, I my mind immediately went to our rooted handbook that we have where, you know, and this is the first version of it. And, and thanks to all of the experience that we're learning now, we're going to continue to better that handbook and improve the content in it. But in our seed section, you know, we talk a lot about innovation and and obviously cultivating soil is still so crucial to that but i love when you start talking about self-efficacy because some of the things that we have in there in terms of of you know steps or par- aspects of innovating was this really strong desire you know that that you you know which is this driving purpose that you've been talking about this desire of something and knowing that it can work and then this belief that follows it like you actually believe that you can you can do it. And I think oftentimes the reason why we don't get very innovative is because maybe we have an idea and we don't have full confidence that we can figure it out or you know, we're just kind of lackadaisical about it uh, and we're just taking all the right steps, but we're not really deeply in it with our belief and, and this desire that, you know, that it can work. So I really appreciated when you, you know, brought that up as a key attribute of all of these, these uh, innovators.
1: Cool. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Salam. What was your follow up question to that?
2: Well, I, I I think you touched on it. I it's really interesting the way you describe Steve Jobs in particular because given how innovative Apple is, um, the
0: movies did a good job of explaining him. How you are explaining him those movies that. Uh, yeah. About
2: him. Yeah. And I haven't I haven't seen the movies. I haven't watched the movies. So pretty good. but when on the surface, when you think about Apple being this incredibly innovative company and they have the most innovative, beautifully looking engineered design products, you can't help but think about the chief architect of that organization as being that kind of a person, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, but I think what's intriguing is that And perhaps it's a question, can you be an authoritarian, top-down, because both Musk and Steve Jobs sounds like were a bit on the micromanaging side of things because they cared so deeply about the product, that they still cultivated an environment that encourages innovation and getting people to think beyond whatever boundaries they're operating within. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to have just a, a, a... truly open, sort of free-flowing type of leader for your innovation to for innovation to occur in your organization, you could have an authoritarian type leader that is that is sort of strict relative to the details, but that does not hinder or hamper people's ability to, to think outside the box, to innovate, to be creative, to bring ideas forward. And it's an interesting kind of dichotomy and a delicate balance. So just, just your thoughts on that before we transition to some other questions.
1: Yeah, I think there's... There's two things we want to kind of try to tease apart here if we can, and that is that on the one hand, one of the things that um, Musk and Nikola Tesla and, and Steve Jobs had in common, um, not Thomas Edison really, but, but those three guys in particular I'd say, is they tended to approach their work and their life as how should the world be. Right. Not what's the next product. that will make a lot of money. How do we build on our capabilities? Mm-hmm. What's our strategy? None of that. It was like, what, how should the world be? And it isn't. And I want to fix that, Yeah. you know, and then they held themselves to a really high standard within that. Like they didn't, you know, they were like, we're, you know, this thing has to be beautiful and perfect and it has to change the world in this way. And so they came across, you know, I think they come across as authoritarian And that they're they're so demanding. Right. They're like, it has to be this way and you have to get it done in three months. And it's possible. Just do it. Get it done. Um, But on the other hand, I think that, you know, I I haven't worked at Apple, but I talked to enough people who worked at Tesla. To know that in some ways, it comes across as a disorganized place. And so some people react negatively when they hear that. Oh, it's, it's disorganized. That's, that can't be good. On the other hand, what I think you're seeing there is that there is room to define how you're going to pursue a problem or to define your own role or define your own job. So it's not incredibly structured. So it's one thing to have a demanding leader. It's another thing to have a demanding leader with a whole lot of rules and a whole lot of structure mm-hmm. in place if you have a whole lot of rules and structure in place, that's going to really create a very narrow space for what you can do. And it's going to limit your creativity and your ability to improvise. Um, But you could have someone very demanding about what you're supposed to accomplish, who doesn't create a lot of rules about how you're supposed to accomplish it. And that could actually inspire a lot of innovation and creativity. As long as people Buy in to the goal. That's the thing: is that they have to believe in the goal, kind of the way you do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, it's interesting when you talk to people at Tesla or at SpaceX. You know, a lot of them will say it's a really hard place to work. We get really burned out, but they love it. Now, not all of them love it. Plenty of people leave too. There's a lot of turnover. But, but you know, SpaceX is doing something that really no one else in the world is doing mm-hmm. and so if you if you want the opportunity to really build something fundamentally new in space that's where you want to be yeah you know you have to be there
2: yeah that makes good sense yeah one of the things that chris and i talked about yesterday in that podcast on leadership is leading with purpose mm-hmm. and it sounds like these individuals in particular. Lead with with purpose, with a particular mission, and they have laser-like focus on that mission, and they're uncompromising. Yeah. So, absolutely, w- what does innovation look like in organizations that have different types of leaders uh, that are not, you know, that that are essentially they're leading and managing the organization based on a set of clearly defined parameters? whether it's uh, an agency, a nonprofit. They come in with an already baked vision and purpose. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. What does, what does innovation look like in that context?
1: Let's talk about a couple different kinds of organizations. I'm gonna start with one that's a little bit closer to these and then I'm gonna go further away. So let's start with Google. So at Google, you have a you have a purpose, but it's, mu- it's much more broadly defined, right? Like their mission was to make the world's information more accessible and easy to find and easy to use, right? Which is, which is a cool, super cool mission. It's one that ben- Benjamin Franklin would have embraced wholeheartedly. But it's, um, it's very broad. And, you know, the scope of markets you could touch with that mission is really broad. And the way you could tackle it is really broad. And so one of the things they do, which is not new to them because Johnson & Johnson has done this and 3M has done this, is that on the, on the creative side of their organization – and I'm, I'm putting that caveat in because it doesn't apply to like accounting and finance. Yeah. But on the creative side of that organization, they give everybody um, – or at least they were giving everybody – I think they've had some discussions about changing this – 20% time, which is time that people – have to commit to a project that they come up with themselves that they're going to pursue and develop so it's it's sort of like creating an enforced time for innovation Mm -hmm. like where you work on your own and you pursue something that's meaningful to you and maybe it doesn't work and they have a really high failure tolerance which which is extremely important because a lot of innovation is going to fail and if you Make it so that people are afraid to fail. If you have an organization that's all about de risking, mm. you're going to make people choose really safe projects, like real, to be really conservative, incremental innovators. You know, if innovators at all, they're probably going to, just going to stick mostly with what they've done before. But if you want people to innovate, you have to have a very failure tolerant environment. You've got to tell people, look, we, we know you're going to fail at things, but we want you to try and we want to see what, what you learn when you fail. And we want you to pursue things that you think are important and pursue it the way you think you should do it. And that's a really great way of tapping, you know, creativity at a really deep level and also drawing out a lot of diversity. Now that's a, an organization that has a lot of slack, right? So, like a lot of organizations can't do that. If you're working in a very competitive manufacturing industry, for example, you probably can't afford to give your employees 20% of their time to do their own thing. So so that's something that that takes a certain amount of slack to be able to do and and slack has an interesting relationship with innovation all on its own but now let's take a totally different kind of organization that we don't think of as high tech let's think about someone like starbucks so if you ever have a chance to visit the starbucks headquarters in seattle um uh, you'll find that they have this they have this big space it's like a a big almost like a warehouse space it's set up to be kind of, um, I think of it almost like a playground space, but a playground space for innovators where you take projects, you take problems that have come up uh, in in their stores or in their cafes or suggested by customers, or just suggested by employees, and they tackle them in this space in little modules, little pods, let's say, little areas of the room where they can try out solutions and beta test them right away. So they have a bunch of what look like little cafes in this warehouse, and they use it to just tinker, to give people a chance to try to solve a problem and try it out in, you know, to first try to solve the problem and then figure out a way to make it efficient to produce and deploy throughout the organization. Hmm. And uh, that's probably a lot more tractable for some organizations than telling people you get 20% of your time to pursue a project of your own choosing. Yeah. Uh, And then they, and they track all these projects on a big leaderboard. It's, it's pretty cool.
0: You know, the more that I, you know, hear you talk about things, the clearer it becomes to me that innovative organizations or people that cultivate this, this idea of, of being innovative have to be okay with, with, with failure. Right. And, and, and to like you had mentioned Friday, even celebrate it and, not the fact that we failed but celebrate what we learned because of it. And so right. if, if there's an environment where there's this huge fear of failure or doing the wrong thing, um, you know, it just it's going to inhibit uh, the innovation from happening. And uh what's really interesting is, you know, I used to work at the Arbinger Institute and we would do these assessments on organizations and we try to connect mindset to all the different aspects that happen within an organization. One of them being innovative, you know, innovation, results focus, and so on. And uh, when when we started talking about results focus and this ability to be creative and innovative, it would lead back to this component of of this mindset that we carry, right? And we we narrow it down to two mindsets: inward or outward. Inward, as I'm all focused about myself. Outward means I taking into account the objectives and goals of others and the organization. And what what we found interesting was that. People that would answer the question, you know, a series of questions around them, their fear, this has a point, I'm, I promise I'm getting to a point, uh, their fear <laughs> of their perception that others have of them in the workplace, so they're always concerned about what other people think about them, uh, yeah. drastically impacted their ability to be creative, to be results focused, to be innovative. And when people are concerned about themselves in that way, what is so-and-so thinking, or what are people going to think if I do this or do that? It, it Directly impacted their their uh, you know ability to be successful in, in, in those areas or to even try you know and to be yeah. okay with the failure. So I there's a lot to be said about that and I, I I love that that idea and I don't think that there's enough of it. I think most people, uh, myself included, show up to work and we're concerned what other people will think about us if we make a mistake. We're concerned about what if people will judge us, uh, and that just gets in the way of 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 our ability to, to be creative, to, to be innovative, to, to take a risk and 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 to maybe fail. But what, what do we learn from it? It just, all of those opportunities are cut off. So I, I really like that that idea. And that's what I'm hearing from, you know, from what you're saying.
1: Yeah, there's two things I want to pick up on there and what you said that I think are extremely important. And there's sort of fundamental things we can harness, uh, not only to make our organizations more innovative, but to make our, our people have greater well-being. So the first one has to do with this, uh, do you know? So and, and they're both they're both connected to this this fear-driven conformity, right? And consensus norms. So the first one is that as a, if you make people feel like they need to come to an agreement, and if people generally feel like they kind of need to look like each other and be accepted by each other and be quote-unquote normal, you're going to drive out a lot of innovation in your organization, and you're also going to have probably uh, a fair number of people who aren't as happy as they could be, because the truth of the matter is we're heterogeneous and some of us are, some of us are weird. And if we can find a way to, to accept weird people and to model that acceptance of weird people and celebrate, you know, weird people I'm using, I'm using weird kind of um, as a placeholder here for just meaning anything that's, that's a little bit different from maybe what our expectations Mm -hmm. were, and it could be agreeable, or it could be the way you dress, or the way you think, or the kinds of ideas you have. Uh, if you can find a way to create a real acceptance of the heterogeneity of people, that's ex- that's extremely powerful, right? That yeah. So that people feel comfortable being different. Because the more they're trying to be like everybody else, the less innovative they're gonna be, mm-hmm. but also the less happy they're gonna be, because they're not gonna be true to themselves. And I think that's one of the things that really helped the tech industry. And and also Apple, for example, is that here's Steve Jobs growing up in the full on hippies era of Northern California in this feel free to be you and me culture. And so he was all about, you know, letting people be weird and being weird himself. And it became almost something to be proud of that you're that you're different. And, you know, you don't seem like everybody else. And, and, um, So that's something that leaders can do is model that process of, hey, you don't have to conform here. We don't have to agree on everything here. We don't have to come to consensus. We can pursue multiple ideas simultaneously, even if they seem incongruent. That's a really powerful message. And then, and so that's actually about people. But also then the other thing to recognize, and this is particularly true of breakthrough innovation. I never actually connected these things so explicitly before, but I think they do connect up nicely. Breakthrough innovation is almost always ugly, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like the first time someone comes to you and pitches a really breakthrough idea, the odds of you liking it or feeling comfortable with it are super low because by its very nature, it's going to disrupt something. It's going to be anti-paradigmatic. It's going to change the flow of the way we did things or it's going to reject norms or assumptions that we previously held as sacred. And so initially breakthrough ideas – people don't tend to like them. And it's normal. That's normal for people to not like them because the odds of you having simultaneously had the same breakthrough idea and the same thinking process that led you to that outcome are almost zero. So when somebody pitches that idea yeah. to you, you're like, what? Yeah. Well, that won't work. No, that's not how we do things. Ugh, that yeah. that feels weird, you know?
0: Yeah, and, psycholo- and so- psychologically, you know, it's, it's, it's an admittance that, I might be wrong, or I'm not doing what could be best, <laughs> and so there's yeah. resistance to it because I I would then have to admit that okay, well, what you're suggesting is is better way of doing it, and I have to like, swallow the pill of okay, maybe Absolutely. maybe the way I'm thinking well, about it is not not but, the best.
1: But hold on, the thing is, part of the problem is that we're review, we're viewing it as meaning that we were wrong, when what we really need to view is that what the way we were doing things we're right for the stage of development that we were in. Like Mm -hmm. that was the best idea that we had before. And we should expect every best idea that we had before to ultimately fall in Mm -hmm. place of a better idea. I mean, that's what technological progress is. That's why someday things are going to be better and different and, you know, more health and Mm -hmm. less poverty and less homelessness and more intergalactic space travel. Because all of our existing ideas will eventually fall in the face of even better ideas. So we don't have to think we were wrong before. We just have to think now is the time for something even better or even more or different. It's time to evolve. Um, But the reason I'm bringing this up mostly is because when people have breakthrough ideas, a lot of times they're going to go and try to pitch them to other people because they're seeking affirmation and support. And, you know, a lot of the times they're not going to get the affirmation and support b- that they were expecting because it's the p- other people aren't going to see it, at least not right away. Or they're not going to like it or they may feel threatened by it. And so there's a couple of lessons in there. One of the lessons I always tell uh, people who come to me with their breakthrough ideas is, hey, don't go looking for support for your idea. You need to believe in it yourself and you need to know that a lot of people aren't going to understand it yet. And that's because it's a breakthrough idea. So just because other people don't like it doesn't mean it's wrong. And that's a very important thing for people to internalize. And from the other side of the coin, it means that as a manager, just if you if somebody comes to you or you as a leader, if somebody comes to you with an idea, just because you don't like it at first doesn't mean it's wrong or doesn't mean you should support it. You shouldn't expect to like the biggest breakthrough ideas. And so I always tell my students, for example, that if you come to me with your pitch, I'm going to try really hard not to judge your idea. What I'm Mm -hmm. going to do is try to give you all the tools you need to analyze it and develop it and deploy it and get the support you need to really make this happen. That's my job. My job isn't to figure out what breakthrough, what, you know, to know in advance every breakthrough idea that's going to make it in the world. That would be crazy, right? That would just be a stifling thing, you know. So um, so, you know, that's part of leadership is being willing to kind of to support the person and to help them get the resources they need. And if you believe in the, the person and and you see that they're working hard on the execution and they've done good analysis and or they've done a lot to show you the rigor and their thinking, you don't have to believe in the idea to support it.
2: Melissa, that, that's really interesting. I, I love the way you framed these key components that need to be in place in order for individuals to to try, to explore, to innovate, et cetera. And in my mind, what you're describing is culture. It's organizational culture, organizational um, norms, protocols, et cetera. But it comes down to culture, and culture is a really key ingredient of having healthy soil. And I really appreciated what you said about innovation. Uh, We had a session on innovation a while back, and we discussed that innovation is not necessarily the same as invention. Invention can be a form of innovation, but you're talking about making things better, things evolving, things improving. Um, And the other thing that we talk about in the context of soil and uh, the groundwork leadership, rooted leadership framework is impact. So you could could improve things slightly, but have a huge impact. And that is still seen as innovation Mm -hmm. because it improved the product. It improved the process. It improved an experience and most importantly, it improved the outcome. And you talked a lot about the outcome as a key component here. So what do leaders need to do in order to create or cultivate this culture that is so essential for individuals to innovate or at least not to not to be guided by this fear driven conformity that keeps them from putting themselves out there and innovating?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the I think there's a lot of things you can do, but um, one of the things that jumps out really clearly is that uh, giving people more autonomy and uh, enabling them to pursue projects that they believe in is is really valuable. Uh, you know, giving people some time to work alone, not driving a consensus-driven process, like don't have your meetings end in vote you know don't don't pick projects based on votes you know if we know we're going to vote at the end that's going to just change everything from the moment we begin yeah. like the whole meeting is transformed the minute we know that it's a consensus a consensus process where we have to get agreement if i know everybody has to agree with me then that's just going to change what i put into the hopper in the first place i'm going to pick my you know less controversial already shared more likely to be mediocre <laughs> ideas because they're more likely to get agreement Um, so nurturing, sort of nurturing autonomy, nurturing this willingness to think different and to be unconventional and to challenge assumptions and letting people work on their own sometimes and not having consensus driven processes. That's all sort of in the same genre. That's one bucket. Then another bucket I would say that's important is cultivating, uh, idealistic goals in the organization, like finding that big common mission or purpose that's going to make us feel intrinsically motivated, that we want to jump out of bed in the morning and that we would do maybe if you didn't even pay us. That This goal that makes you feel like your life was well lived, like instead of thinking I'm going to work on increasing earnings by 10% this quarter, I'm going to work on curing cancer or I'm going to make sure that I get, you know, 100 people off the street this year or I'm going to make kids enjoy school more. Like finding that common purpose is extremely valuable for so many Reasons. Like first of all, it's this huge well of intrinsic motivation, and we know intrinsic motivation leads to more creativity, as opposed to e- extrinsic motivation, which is things like rewards and pay and bonuses. Like find, tapping people's intrinsic motivation is is huge, but it's it's also going to make people think bigger. Like they're gonna they're gonna stretch themselves to to view a point further on the horizon if they're if they're trying to pursue this idealistic goal, which is going to make them more nimble, agile thinkers, because instead of being locked into like some current path they're on that has a process that we already agreed upon or we've already done in the past, they're going to be thinking, okay, how do I get to that endpoint? Maybe I have to change the way I'm pursuing it. Um, Yeah, getting people really focused on that's really, really important. And then the last piece related to that one is that it also makes people more resilient. So this grit that we want people to have or persistence or resilience, idealistic goals is one of the way you get that because if if people are focused on a purpose they believe in suddenly how people think about them doesn't matter as much anymore and criticism and failure don't stop them anymore right so that's that's a really important bucket and related to that bucket is one more bucket i think that's super important is the self-efficacy bucket that we talked about earlier which means you've got to get everybody uh, you've got to get everybody thinking that we can solve any problem if we just determine that we're going to overcome the obstacles and do it. That that people with really high self-efficacy they believe they can achieve. They believe they can achieve every objective they have. They just apply themselves. That they can overcome any obstacle to achieve their goals, and. Uh, these are, you know, if you take a look at self, uh, take a look at Thomas Edison, for example, one of the things people noted about the way he worked that was both intriguing and unusual and ended up being really effective is that he was wildly persistent. So, you know, everybody knows the story of him trying something like, you know, thousands of different filaments in the light bulb until he found one that burned longer. But he was the same way with the battery. He tried like 10,000 ways to try to solve electrical energy storage. And at one point, uh, I think it was Charles Batchelor, came into his lab and felt bad for him because Edison was just at the bench there trying something over and over again, different way, different way, different way, different way, failing, failing, failing. And Batchelor said, you know, I feel really bad for you seeing you fail so many times. And Edison whirled around and looked at him with this look on his face of like incredulity saying – what do you mean fail? I, I haven't failed. I've just found you know 9,999 ways that won't work, right? And to him, that was a success because he knew if he just kept at it, he would find a way that did work. Yeah. And that's self-efficacy. And you can breed that into the organization in a number of ways that we talked about at our session the other day. And I think, oh, I wanna bring up one last thing related to what a manager can do. And that is sometimes we think uh, we often think that the solution is to pour money on the problem or training on the problem. And, you know, studying this in, you know, in some ways I believed that because I'm a business school professor. So we tend to think that education is going to really help innovation. And we also tend to think that we can pump investment into a particular region or technology and stuff's going to bloom. Uh, but when you study these innovators, one of the things that comes across is that none of them had a lot of money. They were all self starters. they, you know, none of them came from a position of wealth or even at none of them even had an advantageous position in the technology that they ended up working in. Unless you want to say like Steve Jobs lived near Hewlett Packard. That's kind of an advantageous position. But the thing that they did that we can learn from is they connected to other people that helped them solve their problems. So they knew what they wanted to do. And then they found people who could help them do it. So Steve Jobs found, you know, went to Hewlett to help him solve a problem. He found Wozniak, Wozniak, who helped him solve a bunch of problems. Um, Marie Curie actually found Pierre Curie, who had a machine that helped her solve a bunch of problems, and then also found some other people along the way who helped her solve problems. Even Einstein had people that helped him solve math problems that he had struggled with initially. So one of the lessons we can learn there is that one of the key things we can do in our organization is connect people to the other people they need to help them uh, achieve their goals, to solve their problems, or to access the resources or the knowledge they need. It isn't always money. It's often people mm-hmm. that we need.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and when a few things come to mind that I want to respond to, but just that last bit, I mean, the way we describe our soil is is the people, right? And, and so uh, people that are willing to collaborate and willing to see one another— uh, Willing to to share and and connect, uh, you know, is a sign to me of, of of healthy soil. But after Friday, I was a fan of, you know, an even bigger fan of uh, of your take on all of these things and your work. And I'm even a bigger fan now, just being able to talk about it. Oh,
1: thank you. More. Yeah,
0: of course. Uh, but the reason why is I don't I don't think that I have high expectations on a, on a concept of and and what sort of concepts will resonate with me. It's really simple, you know, and this is your life's work. So this is going to probably speak to you. But, you know, if somebody's going to talk about a topic like innovation, which is a word that's thrown around all the time, I mean, you know, going to different community gatherings, Salam and I know it's a word that's just, you know, people bring up all the time, but there's never really clarity on how to do it. And so my expectation of when I find a concept or, you know, a theory or an idea and, and why I stick with it or why I care about it and continue to study it, is if it's broken down in a way that just makes sense to me and and my notes you know from Friday and you broke it down really well for us and you've just you just barely went over all of these components but I'm going to list them off again you know you gave us the two questions how do we foster an innovative culture and you said how do we find breakthrough opportunities in our industry or our work or our community you know and the first thing you you spoke about was autonomy and unconventionality and you you just mentioned that you know moments ago Second was extreme self-efficacy, which you've talked about. Third, idealistic goals, which is one that, I, that resonates with me you know, deeply. And uh, fourth was need for achievement and love of work. And five was training and resources. And I think you know, those just make a lot of sense to me to make being innovative something that is achievable and tangible and not this mythical thing that just might happen to some people. That were, you know, that, that were somehow genius. Uh, it, I mean, those, those things make it real to me. And, and when I look at other organizations that I've been a part of or that I know or people that I know that tend to kind of be on the cutting edge of certain things or are leading an industry or are innovative. All of those qualities, I didn't have the language before, but now I do, which is why I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of your work now is I have a language okay. to, to dissect what they do to be so innovative. Um, and so you know I, I, f- I, f- I just feel like I needed to, to put that out there because it's it's connecting dots for me. and I'm still thinking through all of this, so I hope that um, you know anybody that's listening as well is able to start connecting these dots of making innovation something that's achievable and practical. And you don't have to be a Steve Jobs in order to do it. I mean, there's so many ways to be innovative and, and you've listed them out um so well. So I, I just had to had to think out loud for a second. So I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> oh, I like that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well I so we wanted to transition into an an uh another buzzword that's out there. You know, people throw this around when they're talking about leadership all the time, and it's this idea of accountability. And I wanted we wanted and salam actually passed me a note because he reminded me to bring this topic up because it's it's really important in leadership and we've been talking about it just recently but what is your take on accountability and its importance uh not just in leadership but in this innovative process
1: Hmm. interesting i mean i haven't really spent much time thinking about accountability other than the fact that i do think that it's uh I do think it's useful for people to have ownership over their projects, you know, and this is actually connected to the idea of self-efficacy too, that they're not just cogs in a wheel, but they're going to, they're going to create their own wheel and their own process so that they're going to follow something all the way through to an outcome. And, you know, in in. Feel that joy if they're successful and that pain if they're unsuccessful. But to recognize that even when they're unsuccessful, to to figure out what they learned that was beneficial from mm-hmm. it. So, I guess, um, you know, one of the things I think that's that's pretty damaging both to employee morale and to innovation is when we make tasks and jobs really narrow and we separate inputs from outcomes. Yeah. People people want to see the outcomes and to, to know that their inputs are driving the outcomes and to be able to sometimes change the way they do their inputs drive outcomes. So I guess I think of that as accountability. And I think that that's, uh, it's not only, it's probably not only good for efficiency and innovation, but it's also probably good for the human spirit. you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I think what you just described is definitely a key component to, to accountability. When you talk about ownership, both the joy, uh, but also the failure. And in our content, we talk about we talk about seeds you know and being innovative and coming up with the right seed and, and how do we do it and that's when we talk about desire and belief, but part of it, you know is being the steward of the soil. So if a seed is planted and it works, it's really easy to take credit for that and to be part of it because it works and the fruit you know the fruit it bears is so awesome, you know and and it, it gives us attention and it feels good, you know it's nice when things work out. But also when there's weeds in the soil or a seed doesn't work, to me, accountability is I still need to be the steward of that and own it, and uh, and that's what I think is a is is one of probably the most important aspects of accountability is this ownership um, for what we're stewards over, um, where our impact is felt and and where our reach is, the things that we do, uh, whether it's innovation or you know how we manage, and and being having ownership for not just when things go well but when we make mistakes and when we uh do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or come up with the wrong thing or or we're just we had the wrong idea i think that accountability is having ownership over those things so the way you phrase it is i think is directly related to to accountability and something that you know every leader everywhere needs to always keep in mind cuz having ownership yeah. for the good and, for the good is easy but the bad not
2: not so not so much
1: I know, it's
2: really interesting. It's interesting because we often think of accountability as a technical function, as a technical process that we go through. But there's also process accountability that gets at those notions that you described in terms of autonomy, efficacy, investment, outcome, belief in what you're doing. And these are actually measurable things. things. We may think they're not tangible, but you can measure efficacy if you wanted to. So I really love the way you just described it, because this notion of ownership, uh, accountability is taking responsibility for your own actions, uh, subscribing to an idea that you came to this organization primarily for the reason of, you know, I mean, to to work on that on that mission. So I, I really like that because it just pushes us to think about accountability as more of an adaptive exercise rather than purely a technical one. Did you do the task or not? In this particular case, we could say, this is the philosophy of the organization. Have you embraced the philosophy? Have you demonstrated your willingness to engage and be a part of it? And innovation requires taking risk. And that is a form of accountability. Are people willing to take risk? Do they have the efficacy that goes along with that? Are they willing to own their success and their failures? Are they willing to learn? from the success and the failure? Are they willing to share it with others? Uh, Those all can be forms of accountability, right?
0: Absolutely. And we have a mantra, you know, within our leadership institute. And we, you know, we sort of stole it from the Arbinger Institute, but we we constantly try to remind the leaders, and we're included in this, uh, but we constantly try to remind that as leaders, we shouldn't, our job shouldn't just be to hold people accountable. In fact, we should try to do that Few and far between, and more so, create accountable people. So instead of holding people accountable, create accountable people. And I think that uh, part of this, you know, cultivating an innovative culture—that question you posed to us and these different steps you laid out—contribute to that. It's creating people to not just be innovative, but being like Salam said, accountable to to what it is that they're doing, uh, and and to that process of of inno- of innovation.
1: You know, I think it's interesting. I think this accountability thing has a nice relationship to fear of failure, too. I mean, um, I'm going to start a little bit further back. I had this, we had this uh, great senior professor at uh, in our department who's now in, I think he's in Oregon now, Bill Starbuck, and he had this expression that he always told us when we were junior faculty. You know, when you're an academic, you have to submit articles to journals, and you hope that they get published, and they go through a really, scathing peer review process of this blinded, you know, double blind peer review process where they don't know you and you don't know them. And sometimes they write really, really difficult things in the reviews and it's, it's, you're much more likely generally to get rejected than to get your paper accepted. But uh, after that, you get this review, you have to respond to these review comments. And Bill Starbucks lesson to us was the reviewer is always right. Even when they're wrong, And what he meant was, you know, sometimes you read the reviewer's notes and, you know, you're like, ah, he didn't understand my work. (laughs) And what you need to realize is, okay, it's my job to find a way to help them understand my work. Mm -hmm. Or if you think, oh, the reviewer didn't even read the footnotes. Okay, well, if the reviewer is not going to read the footnotes, my audience probably isn't going to read the footnotes either. So I need to find a way to get that concept into the text. And maybe I need to put it in bold and maybe I need to give it a heading. So the whole idea was about owning the process by which other people might seem to fail in your process. And and part of our resistance to that is fear of failure. You know, we think that if we don't get the article accepted, that that's bad and we're not good enough and we have this failure. If our innovation doesn't work or our process is inefficient, we're afraid of that failure. But if we can instead think more about what we've gained through our failures and to think that, you know, failure is not so scary and it's part of the process and it's part of learning and it shows that we're trying new things, then it actually becomes easier also to embrace accountability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, lo- I love that. And to me, nothing teaches accountability more than a leader that owns up to all those things that they lacked in or that they did wrong and, and vocalizing it, not just personally owning up to it, but sharing it. uh, It's so much better and so much more. um, It resonates deeper for me, at least, if I have a leader stand in front of me and instead of pointing blame to why things didn't work out and not taking the responsibility of it and saying, well, it's this person's fault or they just didn't understand what we were trying to do. you know, That's not teaching me accountability as much as somebody that says, look, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I can do better. Here's what I learned from it. Um, they're they're not talking about accountability, but they're teaching it to me. So, yep. and that's what I heard yeah. from that example you gave. Uh, I love that. Well, we are um, around an hour, so uh, we just want to spend a few more minutes. But I want to get in specific to to come, some of your thoughts on on uh, on leadership. And Salam, feel free to to jump in. But a um, couple questions here. Uh, one, you know, interesting one to just think about you know, in all of your leadership experience that you've had throughout your career, you know, if you could, if you could go back and tell the, the earlier version of you, you know, one thing about leadership that you feel would have been helpful for you to know the whole time, what, what, I mean, what would you go back and, and tell yourself?
1: Hmm. Um. I mean, when I, when I look at my strengths and weaknesses as, as a leader, some, some of my weaknesses, I'm not sure how to change. So I'm not sure if I would go. Like, I, you know, one of my biggest weaknesses I'd say. Is I I'm, hate
0: that. I, I'm the same way.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm very impatient. You know, I tend to want things yesterday and uh, I don't actually know how to change it. And I sometimes worry about what the negative fallout of changing it would be because I'm impatient with myself too. And so I tend to, I tend to err by commission instead of omission. I tend to charge mm. into things and it's got me into trouble here and there. Um, but on the whole, I'm actually glad that I had that trait, you know? So, um, I guess, I guess spending, I, one of the things I think I probably should have done more of early on, and honestly, I'm still not that great at it is spending a little more time thinking about the person that I'm working with and what they want and what they're good at and what they're not good at and how to frame things in a way that's really going to work for them. I tend to, I have a tendency to assume that other people are going to be like me and that they're going to want what I want out of the project and they're going to be comfortable working the way I want to work on the project. And, and, uh, I haven't always been correct about that, you know, and so maybe spending a little bit more time, on the early end, getting to understand what other people want out of a project, for example, would be useful. And, you know, trying to understand what that person's best contribution to a project is and what it isn't would have been useful. Because I think sometimes I had inappropriate expectations of people. And I think that that sometimes has been hard on some of the people that I've worked with.
0: Yeah. I almost get the the chills when you say that, because to me that you know, is such an important aspect of any relationship, but certainly when we're a leader and in a leadership position and we're the steward of that soil to see the other people, you know, at that level uh, of, you know, not just noticing them as another person, but going beyond that, you know, is really when we start to see is when we, like you said, start to think about their, what they're trying to achieve, their challenges, what, you know, what's on their plate and and also, in the same breath, recognizing how I might, how the way I'm seeing it might not be <laughs> the right way that they need to see it. Uh, I think all of that is 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 really important, you know. And 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 I love that uh, that you said that, Salam. Yeah, anything it doesn't to mean, that? doesn't
1: mean that yeah. I'm good at it yet. <laughs> hey, me, me,
0: me neither. I'm also not very patient, and I'm lucky to work with someone like Salam because he, to me, he's very patient. So a lot of times, I want I want things to go boom, 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 and he reminds me, hey. We needed this this isn't gonna happen right away and and the right thing to do is to you know take take our time with this and and do it the right way and so i I appreciate people around me like that to remind me but so yeah. so go I, ahead Salon. i
2: I think the key is is moderating our urgency because I think that's what what one of the key ingredients for our success as as leaders and individuals. And it's a big part of our life journey. We we have urgency, we're impatient, we want to yeah. get things done because we see the value. And most importantly, we recognize the impact that something like this could have on others. And it's just, it's how do you temper that so people don't see you as demanding without understanding what it is that you're demanding. Um, I, I think what's at the core of this, and it's an essential ingredient, if you will, in our uh, framework, the leadership framework, and the soil component in particular is mindset. And I think that's what you and Chris just described is, and, and mindset, and it's based on the Arger the Arbinger's uh, Institute work. It, it's about how we see people, how we see others. Uh, we take into consideration the needs of others. And most importantly, it's um, self-checking is is engaging in this process of checking ourselves if you will to um be clear and to understand how we show up as leaders and the impact and how that affects others if you will Uh, i'm not describing it very smoothly but mindset i just wanted to insert that into our conversation mindset is one of the fundamental principles for having healthy soil and it's not just the mindset of the leader of that organization or that entity It's the mindset of the entire organization that can lead to success and innovation, if you will, because if everybody is in the right mindset and they know it's okay to fail, it's okay to experiment, it's okay to put yourself out there, it's okay to be vulnerable, you're going to have more innovative, creative uh, processes and products that lead to better outcomes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And Salam, you you reminded me of... uh of something that we we go over in the in the rooted handbook within the institute but it's it you know it's something that i started using you know a few years ago and and melissa i don't know if, uh, if you knew this about me i i'm a conflict mediator and so at different levels from interpersonal to kind of work work environments and when usually when a mediator comes in it's gotten to the point to where the two parties are clearly not able to figure things out on their own but i use this what i call the change filter and this is in our and this is a this is a topic for a completely other episode. But we call it the change filter, and you know I use it for two parties, no matter how big the parties to to consider in terms of expectations and norms that they want as outcomes uh, in the relationship to improve things. Because currently, you know, and if there's conflict in a, in a negative way, the way things are is not the way they need to be. And so the, the change filter is three questions. And the first one is how can I be the first to change, which is what we've been talking so much about. And the second is how can I be intentional about that change? And then the third is how can I be accountable to that change? And I, I just I thought of that filter as we've been discussing these, you know, these last last topics. Melissa, I don't wanna I don't wanna take too too much more of your time. I, I really appreciate it. I have one last question for you, and it's a it's a bit of a big question, so I might put you on the spot, but I I'd love to hear hear your response to it and it's how would you describe leadership? I mean that's a big question but how would you describe it? You know in a couple of sentences.
1: Huh. Okay. Well, um that's a, it is a big question. I'm sure a lot <laughs> of other people put a lot more thought into it than I have, but from my perspective, from my perspective, leadership is the degree to which you can catalyze the movement of yourself and others towards whatever outcome it is you want to, they want to achieve. Actually, you want to achieve and they want to achieve. So it's, it's just the ability you have to help get yourself and others to whatever that collectively defined goal is. And maybe not always collectively defined, maybe you're helping people get to lots of individual goals, but um, that's to me what leadership is. And, and it can, there can be a lot of different flavors that are going to work better or worse for different people.
0: I love that. Sounds like you, it sounds like a response that you would have given a lot of thought to. That was brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Catalyze the movement of a group towards a common goal or individual goals. I love that. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up, Melissa. uh, I hope that, you know, we can stay connected and I plan on, you know, if you're able to, to have you back in future years with within our Institute, you know, as a guest uh, presenter. Um, I've become a fan of, uh, of your, your material and, and especially these, these steps, you know, to being a a breakthrough innovator, um, you know, they resonate deeply with me, like I mentioned. So, so I appreciate, appreciate your time, um, that you've, you've given us and, and for coming on and doing this episode with us.
1: Thank you so much. I had a really great time and I learned a lot in the process. I really enjoyed working with, with you guys and talking with you today. So thanks again for having me.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you, Melissa.
0: Salaam, any, any anything else you want to add to sum us up? No, I, I really appreciate this because... Um, I could tell Salam was thinking about something.
2: Well, so. it, I would keep <laughs> reflecting on the session that you did with us on Friday, and I'm really grateful for all of your insight and experience and, and knowledge and the, just the wealth of information that you shared with us. And I think it's really important to just kind of sit with the information sometimes And our conversation today helped me even more to internalize it, to process it, to understand it. And most importantly, to tie it to a rooted leadership framework, because there is a lot that we can glean from your work and bring into that context to help further amplify it and make it meaningful and relevant. And I love all of the individual stories that you shared about these inventors and innovators, and they provide great examples and case studies for us to to look at as we try to uh, deepen our understanding of these concepts, but help people understand them and how they apply in a real world setting. So I I really appreciate that. And I appreciate our time together today.
1: Me too. And I appreciate that you guys have a framework to anchor it too, because the more you can anchor everything you learn to a scaffolding that already exists in your head, the more more robust and powerful and stable that becomes. I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the more likely you are to retain it. Yeah. Of course, now you have to remember, sometimes you have to go through and you have to revise oh, connections yeah, in your frameworks and scaffolds. But yeah, that's what that's what knowledge is. That's what building knowledge is, is building this this uh, large scaffolding of knowledge that gives data meaning in your head.
0: Yeah, that's sure. awesome. Well, thank you, Melissa. We'll 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 let you go. But again, appreciate you. Take care. We'll we'll have to stay in touch.
1: Thank you. Talk soon. Have a great day.
0: OK, bye bye. Bye. Well, uh, you heard it really very well fed from from uh, Melissa on on innovation and many other topics. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the episode and uh Salam and I were bump, you know, bumping our fists in the air when she had mentioned, you know, given given us that uh, shout out to our our framework, uh, and you know, something to build upon. And of course, we're still learning quite a bit about the rooted framework around soil seeds and weeds. We will continue to, to learn more and make changes to it and adapt. But, uh, thank you again for joining Salam. Thanks for being in studio as a co-host. You. It's always better and more rich when you're here. So I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thank, thank you everyone. Thank you for joining and we'll, we'll catch you next time.